I just came across this quote. I, I remembered it, but I'd forgotten about it. We were talking about how to handle the scriptures, how to uh, interpret the word of God. And if you go to seminary, they, what, what, do they, what uh, term do they give to the, what we call the art and science of scriptural interpretation? Does anybody know what the term they like to use at, uh, in seminary for the art of, and science of scriptural interpretation? You need to learn words like this. This uh, helps you to intimidate people. They don't fool with you when you use this kind of language, see? Uh, you just hope they don't ask you what it means. You'd be all right. But <laughs> Hermeneutics. You ever heard that expression before? Hermeneutics. That's the art of uh, scriptural interpretation. And it, uh, if you want to really be sophisticated, it comes from one of the Greek gods, Hermes, who uh, took the messages from the God and delivered it to the people. Well, hermeneutics, that's the art of scriptural interpretation. And uh, that's really the key to everything is how you approach the Word of God, isn't it? If you think about it, every problem we have somewhere is related to how we come to the Word of God and approach the Word of God. Well, anyhow, there was an old a prophecy scholar from years gone by. I believe he was probably uh, better known in the 1940s and 50s. But his name was David Cooper. And he gave to what uh, we would call, gave us what is called, some have called the golden rule of interpretation. And listen to what he said. I thought it was very good. He says, when the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Uh, when, the plain sense of, when the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate text studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths clearly indicate otherwise. All right. I thought that's a little long. Just get that first phrase. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Then somebody added to that, when, uh, plain, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest you get into nonsense. <laughs> and I think that's pretty well said, don't you? Uh, just, uh, just read the Bible. Uh, God has created the human mind to understand the Scriptures, and we just need to understand the Scriptures. All the important things we need to know is obvious. It's clear. You know, you're saved by faith alone, by grace alone. There's no debate over 150 times in the New Testament we're told that we're saved by faith alone. And we're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by going to church. You're just saved when you see your sin and you put your faith in Christ alone and save you from your sin. They shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Uh, men have got a sin problem. And the only way to have that sin problem uh, taken care of is putting your faith in Christ as your Savior from sin. So the important things that we need to know are clear, are they not? A lot of, if we don't understand it, they're pro they're, it's not essential. All the essential things we need to know is clear in the Word of God. But to look up here on the board just a second. We're going to look at uh, chapter 1 of the book of the Revelation this morning, but I want, to, want you to see a couple of things. We believe that... Uh, John wrote the book of the Revelation. It's the last book that was written in the New Testament. And uh, they have an expression that they use called a canon. C-A-N-O-N. And uh, when they talk about the canon of scriptures, there are certain rules 
uh, or uh, this is called, uh, would be a, like a measuring rod. A canon is a measuring rod. And so when it comes to a book of the Bible, there are certain qualities that that book must possess in order to be scripture. Uh, uh, God breathed, uh, the word of God. And so they call those rules by which you measure a, a passage of scripture or a, a book of scripture. They call that the canon. And so we like to say that the canon of the New Testament was closed in 95 AD. This is the last, we're probably, uh, probably somewhere around 95, 90, somewhere around 95 AD, the book of the Revelation was written by John. And we know that, we said that uh, a man named Irenaeus said that uh, John wrote his book near the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian. We know that Domitian was assassinated in 96 AD. So John probably wrote that book somewhere around the end of this reign, 97, 95, 96, 90, uh, 95, 96 AD. Now, look up here just a second. There's two men in the church history that uh, were students of John the Apostle. They sat at his feet and learned from him. One man, the most important man, was a man named Polycarp. Another man that sat at John's feet was Papias. So when these men wrote, it's very important uh, to listen to what they said because they <clears throat> sat at the feet of John. And, uh, Polyca uh, and Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp. And so these men are going to be very close to the Apostle John and receive some of the truth from the Apostle John. And it's interesting how all these men, Polycarp, Papias, Irenaeus, and others who lived about this time, they were all premillennialists. They believed that Jesus Christ was going to come back before the millennium, that things were going to get worse and worse and worse, uh, 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 and that uh, Christ himself would need to come back and set up the millennium. So uh, the earliest fathers of the church were all premillennial. Okay, so anyhow, and then and, uh, we're going to look at these uh, seven churches of, of Asia here in just a minute. It's interesting, every time you see the word uh, church in the New Testament, it's drawn from the Greek word ekklesia. And the Lord Jesus Christ there in Matthew 16 says, I will, uh, I will build my ekklesia. And that word literally means a congregation or an assembly. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to build my assembly, or I'm going to build my congregation. Probably congregation is even better, is a better word. But the Greek word behind ecclesia, every time you see the word church, it means a congregation. Uh, William Tyndale in his uh, New Testament always translated the word church, congregation, in, when he first wrote the New Testament. All right. Now, I believe that the word congregation, he drew from the word ecclesia, the word ecclesia was actually taken from the Greek political assembly. Uh, the, that was the Greek government of the city-states. And so the ecclesia was sort of the government of the Greek city-states. Well, what did that ecclesia do? When it was time for the government to meet or the city, uh, the government of the city to meet, everybody would, be, would come out from their homes. They'd be called out from their homes and uh, come to the, what they call the agora, A-G-U-R-A, where the government was centered. They're in Athens. So they'd all come out of their homes and they would sit, all the male citizens uh, had the right to vote. It was a pure democracy. And so they would all come out of their homes and come to the, uh, to the government 
to the legislative assembly and they would sit down and legislate. Uh, they would debate. They would pass bills. Uh, they would raise taxes. Uh, they, would, uh, set, uh, they would have a, a, a civil uh, criminal system. Uh, they would, uh, they would uh, investigate and look into things. It was basically, uh, uh, it was basically the government. All right, that Greek ecclesia, that Greek government, that Greek city-state had the, at least these qualities. They were all visible. You could go to Athens. On a, they would meet on a regular basis. You could go to Athens and you could uh, maybe visit the chamber where they would sit and conduct the city's business. So it was visible. You could see it. <laughs> it was local. It was located there in the Agora in, uh, in Athens, in the Greek city-state, and it had the element of organization. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I'm going to build my ecclesia. I'm going to have my government in one sense. That's the local church. I think the Greek, uh, the word, uh, the congregation or assembly, uh, I think suggests three things. It suggests at least visibility. It suggests locality, and it suggests the number of organization. Uh, I, I love much of the old Schofield reference Bible, but they've got a terrible definition of the church. <laughs> in the Schofield reference Bible, it says, where two or three are gathered together, uh, there am I in the midst. Uh, Mr. Schofield said that was the church. Now, that's not the church. All that is is a, is a prayer meeting. I think it's wonderful to meet, two or three to meet together. That's good. I'm not against meeting together to pray. That's not the local church. The local church, I think, has these elements. Now, like, unlike most uh, like the, uh, of dispensationalists in the Schofield Reference Bible, uh, I consider myself a dispensationalist. But I don't believe in such a thing as a universal invisible church. Now, if you do, that's fine. If you were reared on the old Schofield Reference Bible, nothing wrong with that. I just, I just think that when that term is used, I don't think the New Testament teaches that. I think the only church is a local church, a local visible church. All right, so when we look now at the term church in the book of the Revelation, the seven churches, were, there, were those literal churches? They were all on that eastern end of what would be modern-day Turkey, were they not? In that day, they called it Asia, Asia Minor. And you had those seven churches, but they were all uh, local, visible, organized congregations. If you have a bunch of people that meet together, uh, in one place and uh, to pray and maybe hear a sermon, that's wonderful. That's not, that's not the church necessarily. Just because you have a bunch of Christians in one assembled in one place, that's not the church. The church has to do these things. It's going to defend the faith. The Word of God talks about the pillar and ground of the truth. That's quite a thought, isn't it? The local church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. When you come to the local church, when you come to church, you need to hear the gospel preached, the Word of God preached. And the word of God defended. It's the pillar of the truth. It's there to defend truth. That's one of the missing elements today in many of our independent Baptist churches. Not much defense of the faith anymore, is it? But uh, then uh, what's the local? We're to observe the ordinances, practice baptism and the Lord's Supper. According to the New Testament, you uh, need to be immersed after salvation. After you get saved, you need to be immersed. We call that the in initiatory right into membership of a local church. It's the first step of, uh, in discipleship. Uh, when, you're, when you get saved, you're ordered to, to be immersed, to be baptized. That, that, that way you're telling the world that you're now a Christian. You're putting on the soldier. 
uh, you're putting on the uniform of the soldier of Christ. That's what baptism is. You don't uh, get baptized to get saved. You get baptized because you are saved. And that's your way of identifying as a Christian, as a believer. And then it's your way also, it's the initiatory right to become a member of a local church. I don't think you should be allowed to be a member of the church unless you've been immersed. <laughs> and it's the first step of obedience for a new believer. All right. So anyhow, that's the, uh, the point I wanted to make with this. When you see the word church, this is what I think it is. I think it's, it's a local visible church and it has to have the element of organizations. So you, can, you, you administer the Lord's table and baptism and uh, you are organized to, send to, to carry out the Great Commission. There's about four major things that the local church does. It's organized to observe the ordinances, for the, uh, organized to hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. It's a place where you receive light, the light of Scripture. And then, of course, I think it's there to defend the faith and then I say carry out the Great Commission and so on. Okay. All right, now... Let's come on over to the uh, book of the Revelation. Come to chapter 1. By the way, I don't mind if you ask questions. I enjoy. I don't know if I can always answer them, but I don't mind you asking questions. And I think if it, uh, it's, it's, I don't consider that an interruption at all, okay? Or if you have a good comment to make, I appreciate that. All right, look at the book of the Revelation. Now, we touched on this quickly last week. We believe this book is the last book written of the New Testament, uh, written by the Apostle John, Irenaeus, uh, this man who was a direct disciple of Polycarp. Irenaeus sat at Polycarp's feet, who sat at John's feet. So Irenaeus said that John wrote the Gospel of John somewhere near the end, to use his exact language, that uh, Irenaeus said that John wrote his, uh, the revelation near the end of the reign of Domitian. Uh, this was the first real persecutor of the Christians. He's the one that exiled John to the uh, Isle of Patmos. Patmos was an island just a little bit southeast of Ephesus out in the Aegean Sea. It was about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, a very rocky, stony place. And we know that Domitian had a habit of sending people to Patmos. Uh, that was sort of the prison of that day. And he was sent there for the word of, Christ, a word of God and the testimony of Christ. John was preaching the word and uh, preaching Jesus Christ. And so uh, the Roman emperor Domitian had him exiled to the Isle of Patmos. there in the Aegean Sea. And this is where uh, John uh, got the, uh, the, an angel gave the message of the revelation to John. Then John uh, gave it to us. And John gave it to, to his servants and fellow servants in those seven churches in Asia. All right. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. God the Father now gave the revelation to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ in turn uh, gave that to an angel. And that angel in turn gave that to John. That's what the word of God is saying here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto him, uh, unto his servants, things which must shortly come to pass. Now look at that word shortly. What that means there in the Greek, it means soon. I, I mean, not soon, but it means the opposite of soon. It means quickly. It does not mean soon. Now, it could be soon, but that's not what the word shortly means. It means uh, quickly. 
when, all, when the Lord comes back at the rapture, then at the second coming, all things will be very quick. It won't take long at all. Remember, it talks about the twinkling of an eye and so on. So when you see shortly, that's what it doesn't mean soon. It means, it means quickly. It's going to happen very, very quickly. And uh, must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. Whenever you see the word servant in the New Testament, it always means a slave. It means a bond slave, bond servant. Who bear record of the word of God. That's why John was exiled. He was bearing record of God and the testimony of Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed uh, to be envied in their happiness. The idea there in the Greek. To be blessed means to be envious. If you're so happy, people are envious of your happiness. That's the, the idea there. Blessed is he that readeth. All right, now, here's the word. This is the only book in the New Testament where we're promised to get a blessing. We're promised a blessing if we read this book of the Revelation. And by the way, it's meant to be understood. John Calvin and others, and he wasn't the only one, said, look, I don't understand this book. It's the only book he never wrote a commentary on, thankfully. Uh, but uh, he said, I don't understand this book. Well, these, found, these uh, mainline reformers were so influenced by Augustine, they didn't know how to handle the Word of God. And uh, they, all they knew was how to handle the Word of God uh, allegorically and figuratively. And they refused to read it, when it uh, uh, the way you ought to be read, the way Jesus read it, the way Paul read it, in a literal sense. Blessed is that read. Now, here's three qualifications to get this blessing, all right? Blessed is he that, number one, reads it, and they that hear this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the, night, for the time is at hand. All right, so uh, to get the blessing, you need to do three things. You need to, to read it, to hear it, and then keep it, obey it. It says, John to the seven churches uh, which are in Asia. Now, today there'll be the western end of modern Turkey. All seven of these churches, uh, some, uh, one, commentator, uh, one commentator said it was like a sort of a postal route down that eastern end of Turkey. But these seven churches now are really representative. They really represent all churches. And uh, so, uh, but these were, remember, John now was pastoring in Ephesus. So John, these uh, churches would be his uh, brother churches or sister churches. Uh, he would per perhaps know all these uh, other men, these other churches, and be acquainted with those pastors in those churches. And so John now is exiled uh, just about 20-some miles south of Ephesus off the coast uh, at the Isle of Patmos. So he's actually being uh, exiled very closely to where he pastored for a number of years. So John was the pastor at Ephesus. So he was a pastor now of these, of these seven churches, or uh, of the church at Ephesus that was in the area of these, uh, all these churches. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you. Uh, by the way, this is the very language of Paul. Is it not Paul always wished grace and what other thing? Grace and peace. If I've got the grace of God and the peace of God, that's all I, that's all I need. <laughs> Nothing else is really important, is it? I need more of the grace of God, uh, God's unmerited favor, but it also means just God's uh, God-given God ability. I need the grace of God. Giving is a grace. 
Uh, everything I uh, trying to win souls is a grace. I need more strength, more ability, uh, more Holy Spirit ability to, to to live this Christian life, to live the way I ought to live. So grace is sort of a divine ability, as well as the un, uh, as the favor that we don't deserve. And then peace. I love the way uh, Paul talks in, in Ephesus or in the book of Ephesians rather about the gospel of peace. Now, the greatest thing you can do to, uh, for a man is give him the gospel, isn't it? I could give a man a million dollars, but I couldn't give him peace of mind. Uh, I could put a new suit on a man, <laughs> but uh, I can't give him peace of mind. And there's nothing, uh, the best thing you can do is give a man the gospel uh, because it, it, it's going to give him peace. What a wonderful thing, peace of mind. Do you have the peace of the Lord in your heart? Are you able to lay your head down on your pillow at night and just go to sleep because you got peace? <laughs> What a wonderful thing this salvation is, is it not? Peace of mind. Well, that's no greater wish can we receive than that of grace and peace. From him, which is, and it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. This uh, first chapter is really a great overview of the book of the Revelation, but a great, uh, uh, great overview of the person and work of Christ. The whole person and work of Christ is in this magnificent first chapter. We're talking about Christ uh, from him, which is, which was, and which is to come. It's talking about the eternality of Christ. Christ has always existed, is it not? It's kind of hard in our mind to conceive of something that's always been. I always think of everything as having a starting and a beginning and an ending, a beginning and an ending, don't you? But uh, Christ has always been. And never time, there never was a time when he was not. <laughs> He's always existed for eternity. The word of God affirms the eternity of Christ here in this uh, chapter. Which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now that's a great uh, a, a figure of a uh, great uh, statement of debate. What is the seven spirits? The, the number of seven is complete. Uh, the Word of God, it's a fascinating how many times the word seven is moved throughout, uh, as used all throughout the Word of God, and particularly in the book of the Revelation. But the word uh, seven, uh, the seven, the number seven means completeness, and I think perfection. So the Holy Spirit is perfect. Now come over to Isaiah 11. Some see the Holy Spirit as having seven qualities and having in one sense seven uh, spirits. Isaiah chapter 11 Come down to verse 2. Here we see, I think, seven qualities of the Holy Spirit, or seven spirits. Isaiah 7. Uh, Isaiah 2, I'm sorry. Isaiah 2. It's 11-2. Yeah, I, I've got it backwards. 11-2, not 2-11. Isaiah 11, 2. It says in verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod of the stem of Jesse. That's, who is that rod? It's also called the branch whose ancestor was Jesse. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Jesse was whose father? David's father. And so Jesus Christ is a descendant of Jesse. He's the rod. He's the branch. He's the of the seed of Jesse, who was the father of David. And so, all right, but anyhow, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, upon Christ. 
So number one is the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God. He's the spirit of wisdom. Number two. I'm in 11.2, Isaiah 11, chapter 2. I think I told you 2.11 the first time, didn't I? 11.2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You include the Spirit of the Lord there. There's seven qualities of the Holy Spirit, is it not? Seven things that He is, that He does for us. Gives us wisdom and knowledge and so on. All right. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Now, beginning in verse 5, we see really a great overview of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. That's pretty well self-explanatory, is it not? He's the faithful witness. He's going to give us the faithful message. He's going to be faithful in giving us the message of God the Father. And the first begotten of the dead. Who was the first in history to come from the dead? That was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, was it not? Christ is the first to be raised from the dead. And the, and the prince of the kings of the earth during the millennium Jesus Christ will be a, the king of kings the prince of princes who will rule all the nations of the earth during the millennium will he not during the millennium you're still going to have nations I think you're going to have France and England and America and, and uh, you're going to have kings heads of these nations and they're going to come to Jerusalem to worship and to receive wisdom from uh, Jesus Christ the king of kings uh, somehow David is involved here. He's going to be perhaps a co-regent with Christ. We don't know. <coughs> Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There's the root of the matter, is it not? Salvation. He died on Calvary. He's our Savior. He saved us from sin. He washed away our sins and saved our souls because he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he hath made us, made unto us kings and priests. Now someday we're going to be kings. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. We talked about, uh, we touched on this last week. Uh, during the millennium, I believe many of us are going to be in places of uh, political power and political influence. Uh, I don't know, but uh, the, word, the word of God says that we're going to be kings, those in places of political authority. And then priests, how are we priests? What, does it, what is the primary job of a priest? Where God says we're going to be kings and we're going to be and we are priests. What does a priest do? His, what is his primary job? Uh, he, he'll preach, he'll teach, uh, but he's primarily an intercessor, is he not? We are, are we all interceding for one another and praying for one another? Uh, we're all supposed to be uh, interceders. We're all supposed to be priests, praying for one another. 